0: Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to liven up your bedroom is even better. Go to adamandeve.com and use the Thousand Movie Project Podcast coupon code TMPP to get 50% off of your purchase. Not only that, enter offer code TMPP at checkout and get six free spicy movies. And that's what we're all about here on Thousand Movie Project Podcast Cinema. Also, DVDs are just fun. They're vintage now. It's like masturbating to a telegram. Plus, plus free shipping on the whole thing go to adamandeve.com select the lube the harness the dildo of your choice and enter the offer code tmpp as in thousand movie project podcast for 50% off and now on to the show yeah 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 Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Big things have happened. It's only two things, actually. And one of them happened a few years ago, but nobody... I I didn't see it. The thing that happened... The thing that happened that I want to talk to you about... What I almost said, okay, I'm not gonna, uh, what I almost said right there was that the reason this piece of news is old, and the reason I'm bringing it up now, is because it happened a couple years ago, but nobody told me. Quote unquote, nobody told me. Which is a phrase that I have actively tried to purge from my vocabulary, because in my life I have known two insufferably self-pitying people who would say it all the time. Everything that they hadn't heard about because they had their head up their ass, they'd get sudden wind of this information, they would suddenly realize that they weren't prepared for something critical, and the first thing they would say is, no! Nobody told, me. nobody told me they would say it all the time because that phrase does two things for them first of all it absolves them of responsibility for having no idea what's going on and puts that responsibility on whomever is supposedly responsible for keeping them informed which presumably in in both these people's cases was i don't know cnn or facebook or the jazz police The second useful thing that it does is it victimizes them because of the two people I've known who were never prepared for anything and who always complained that nobody told them. They never said it with a shrug. They never said it like it was just an unfortunate mistake like, oh shit, this is a pool party. Nobody told me. I didn't bring my suit. It was always a whine. It was always incredulous and persecuted. Nobody told me. One of the people who did this was an old colleague, Sarah who was in her 50s, and she was six feet tall, and she was she was pretty heavy when I first met her, but she got heavier and heavier and heavier, and she went around in an electric wheelchair because she had gout, and the pain was apparently unbearable, and the flare-ups of her gout were sometimes so bad that she she couldn't close her shoe over her foot. She would have to take her shoe off at work, but she could technically walk, and she often did walk around the office when her gout wasn't particularly bad, but I did not know this. I got the job, I saw that she was in a wheelchair, I didn't figure it was any of my business why she was in the chair, so I never asked her. I never asked anybody. I always figured it would just come up naturally. And yes, her diabetes was mentioned, and yes, gout was mentioned, but I never knew that she was capable of walking. Sarah didn't walk around the office for about the first six months that I worked at the desk directly beside her. Until one day, I'm sitting at my desk, it's quiet in the tutoring center, nobody's talking, and I hear her take a deep breath. And so I look over, and there's Sarah, sitting in her chair, looking kinda pensive. And then she plants her palms on the chair's armrests, she curls herself forward a little bit, and then hoists herself to her feet out of nowhere, rises out of the wheelchair without a word, standing over me six feet tall, And I I kicked back from my desk, and I was like, holy fuck! My boss pulled his office door open, and he called me, and right away, without even knowing what the situation was, I sat down beside him, and he said, Alex, why did you just scream, holy fuck? And I said, Sarah just stood up out of her wheelchair. I didn't know she could walk. And he said, Alex, you've been working here for five months. How could you have no idea she could walk? And I said, because nobody told me! A few days after that, it's quiet in the lab again, we're sitting at our desks, and the silence is broken when Sarah takes another deep, pensive breath, (sighs) just like she did before standing up out of her chair a a few days prior, and when I heard that sound again, I went completely rigid, and I was like, oh, fuck, what now, can she fly? But she just stays there, and she keeps sighing, and sighing, and sighing, and eventually I'm like, what's up, Sarah, you seem upset. And then she turns to me and she starts touching her face in different ways, like she's voguing. And I see that she's frowning in the way that a child frowns. Her mouth is curled perfectly downward, like a banana. And she says, My friend Balthazar passed away. And nobody told me. So I extended my condolences. I chatted with her a while as she grieved. And after I asked a couple questions, It turns out, this guy Balthazar, or whatever his name was, he wasn't so much a friend as he had been a colleague. And not just a colleague, he'd been her manager. Her manager when she worked at a retail bookstore in, like, 1994. And she hadn't spoken to him since she quit that job, which was also back in the 90s. Just now, 20-odd years later, she decided to look him up on Facebook. And she finds out, in doing so, that he died, like, six years ago but she's acting like it just happened, and she keeps saying, I'd have gone to the funeral, I'd have sent some flowers, but nobody told me. I, I didn't say anything, but I was thinking, well, who the fuck is gonna tell you, Sarah? It's been almost a quarter century since you spoke to this man, and even then, it was on a strictly professional basis. You just told me you're not friendly with any of your old colleagues. Is it the job of the undertaker to like pause ceremonies and say, HALT? Dispatcher pigeon to Sarah, she must be told. Nobody told me. I hate that shit so much. And I do, incidentally, touching back on how this episode opened, I do have two things that I need to mention. One's personal, one is not. But now I'm talking about Sarah, and I feel like I need to flesh this out. Her gout, as I said, was pretty much chronic at this point. But it would flare up because of her diet, and what the wheelchair did was it made her forget temporarily about the pain it allowed her to function, and the pain was what would normally motivate her to improve her diet. So here's the vicious circle. Sarah's wheelchair allowed her to not feel her debilitating physical pain. However, the wheelchair was a source of shame and a huge inconvenience and a huge expense, and this made her sad, and the sadness made her eat comfort food. She was content to eat that comfort food because the wheelchair took away the pain that would normally discourage the eating of comfort food. The eating of said comfort food then exacerbated the pain in her ankle whenever she stood on it, thus making the wheelchair even more permanently necessary, which in turn made her even more despondent so she sought even more comfort food. Mm -hmm. The reason that Sarah stands out in my mind is because she was pretty pretty unstable. She would fight with students pretty often and, and kick them out of the tutoring center One day, a teenager came in, and he was being a prick in the way that teenagers can be pricks, the unique way. And rather than just telling him to leave or to fuck off, she picked up a thousand-page hardcover Norton Literature textbook and hurled it at his head. As I've said, Sarah was six feet tall and probably about 400 pounds. So when she launched that book across the room, she put the fear of God between its pages. I remember I saw the covers fanning out as it was hurling through the air and I could have sworn I heard it caw like a hawk. That 19-year-old kid took that book to the face and he fell out of his chair. It was funny, not in the way that you can laugh about because there was an investigation and the kid was pretty hurt, but it was funny because it was so Sarah who was constantly getting in trouble for things that were that were either cataclysmically offensive and insane, like throwing a book at a student's head, or calling a student a motherfucker because he didn't hold the door open for her. But she also got in trouble all the time for, for petty little shit. Like, for instance, she did this thing with memes that turned into, like, an explosive problem. To give you some context... Sarah was a Jew for Jesus, and she would print Jesus memes in the office using color ink, which nobody was supposed to use for anything because it's so expensive. And after printing these memes, which were usually about how you, you always want to make sure you bring Jesus to the party because he never forgets the wine, she would tape them to the wall beside her desk, which was not technically her workspace. It was just the, it was just the fucking wall. But if anybody brought that up to her, she'd be like, nah, it's next to my desk. It's my wall. Which doesn't make any sense because that would mean that the floor beneath your desk is your floor and that the ceiling above your desk is your ceiling. Which would mean that I could hang a fucking chandelier over my desk because nah, that's my ceiling. Anyway, it's the fucking wall. It's the office wall and she wasn't allowed to decorate it. But all of our superiors were scared of challenging her because whenever something upset Sarah, she would start to weep. Anyway, there came this breaking point one day where Sarah just had so many jesus memes on the wall it had been collected for so long and the whole tableau had been so elaborately configured that if you were to have told her that she had to take the whole thing down she would have wept and if you'd pointed out to her sarah i'm sorry that's not your wall she would have collapsed in tears she would have said but nobody told me and then she would have just wept openly wept until the end of her shift, or, as happened on two occasions, wept so hard that she was told to take the rest of the day off and that she could come in early tomorrow to make up the hours. And here's the thing, she made such scenes, such dramatic, cataclysmic scenes, that people were indeed reluctant to tell her anything. And as such, whenever, you know, the chicken came home to roost, whatever the fuck the saying is, because she had piled up so many offenses, she could justifiably say, that nobody had told her anything. At the end of Sarah's shift every day, she used to ask me to help her pull these blinker lights out from a bag on the back of her chair. The blinker lights were attached to these straps and I would help her to click them into place around the arms of her chair and around the back of her chair. The final touch of this whole process of clocking out and leaving the building was that she would pull on her big floppy hat that she had. And I don't wanna say that it was a witch's hat. I'm not saying that it was a witch's hat But it was not dissimilar to what one might characterize wrongly as the sort of hat that a witch might wear. It had a very wide brim, it was dark, and there was something decidedly cone-like about the top of it. But anyway, these dozen odd lights that we would strap onto her body and her chair would pulse into the night with these jarring flashes of red and white light because Sarah would drive her wheelchair off of campus, up the street and park it at the bus stop, and she would be doing this at sunset. So the lights were a preventative measure against some distracted driver maybe not noticing her on the sidewalk, which was almost certainly not going to happen because these lights were very bright, and there were very many of them, and uh, they were necessary, I will not deny that, but the result is that she kind of looked like a spaceship, or like an escape pod. (laughs) from a spaceship especially because she had this one particular blinker a blinding white light that flashed in these double and triple pulses a pulsing light that threatened the safety of epileptics in a mile radius it was her brightest one and she would fix this one particular bright light to her forehead but the light didn't bother her because she wore it on the forehead of her big floppy wide-brimmed hat so the light was shielded from her eyes in fact she barely noticed it so while leaving the office and and riding her chair to the bus stop at night she looks like a bit of a spectacle six feet tall about 400 pounds driving an electric wheelchair up the sidewalk at dusk with a dozen red and white blinking lights all over her body and there was a publix on her way to that bus stop and if you're not from the u.s publix is a is a popular and affordable grocery store chain down here and sometimes sarah would stop at this publix on her way to the bus stop and she would pick up a few things for dinner well, one day at work, I'm, I'm talking with a student about something to do with cooking. And Sarah turns around from her computer and her wall of Jesus memes. And she says, with a big smile, she says, oh, I have a funny story about Publix. And then she goes on to tell us this funny story about how last night after leaving work she was on her way to the bus stop and she decided to stop at the grocery store and grab some things just a couple things wouldn't take more than a few minutes so she pops into publix she goes through the whole store she gathers all of the things that she needs and she says to us in the most persuasive tone of self-awareness she says i know people look at me sometimes because of the chair but last night and now her tone is changing it's getting more solemn and she says last night was just it, w- it was much worse than usual She says that as she was going through the store, people were putting down their goods. They were stopping their carts in the middle of the aisles just so that they could stare at her, stare at her without even the vaguest attempt at discretion. And even though she's been enduring this for years, it it makes her feel like a bit of a freak. It makes her feel ugly, but she is about as accustomed to it as a person can get, and she is very seasoned at biting her lip and soldiering on through the indignity of it, and that's what she did last night at Publix. She keeps going through the store, she gets her few things, and then she takes them to the express lane, and she tells us with a scoff, a new note of indignation, that while she's in line, the man directly ahead of her has the nerve to ask her about her lights. And I, and I was kind of surprised by this. I said, "He just asked about your lights specifically? And she said, yeah, I was just popping in for a minute. And, and, and I, well, the lights slipped my mind. I, di- I, didn't bother the, I didn't bother to turn them off. And then she smiles in a morbid way. And she tells us about this little kid in line. And the little kid pointed at her. And he grabbed his mom's hand and he said, look, mom, it's a witch. And then right there in the office, Sarah begins to weep. She's saying that people are so cruel, kids in particular, and how could anyone single her out like that? And of course I felt horrible for her, because it sounds like a fucking devastating story. And it certainly was true. I'd seen it firsthand on campus, that people did just stare at her with impunity as she as she rode by. And she was self-conscious about her weight, and about how cumbersome and noisy the chair was. Sarah did not have an easy life. But in this case, in response to this story that she was telling, I I was trying to console her, but at the same time i wanted to make a point and i don't know which impulse was stronger whether you know to console her or to communicate something but i did overstep a boundary i was 23 i didn't navigate these waters very well and so i said to her that sounds awful jesus i'm sorry to hear that you had to go through that um and that it's following you around and making you feel bad but sarah you left your lights on you were gliding through publix at 8 pm with with almost a dozen pulsing electric lights strapped to your body one of them on your forehead strapped to a witch's hat. I totally believe you that people were being indiscreet, but, and she starts sobbing and she grabs a Kleenex from the box beside her computer and she said, I didn't know all those lights were still on. And I said, you're covered with them from head to toe. How did you not realize you had a dozen pulsing lights strapped to your body? And then just before sinking her face into her tissue, she snarled at me and turned her chair away and cried out, Okay, but the big news thing that I'd wanted to mention, the thing that happened A long time ago, and that doesn't concern me personally, I really like a certain novelist named Thomas Pynchon. You might know who he is. He's most famous for his big, cerebral, mind-bending novels, Gravity's Rainbow and Mason and Dixon. Pynchon is in his 80s right now, and morbid as it sounds, I think that his death will spark a tide of renewed interest into his work, especially since literary biographers are gonna beat the door down for an opportunity to go through all of his papers and photos and maybe his diaries and shit. And the reason that biographers are going to lose their fucking mind about the opportunity to get full access to the Pynchon archive isn't because Pynchon is just one of our undisputed titans of of 20th century post-war American fiction. It's because Thomas Pynchon hasn't been photographed in about 60 years. He has never given a proper interview. When given a prize, he sends an actor to collect it. His books are so huge, so funny, so difficult and smart that this mystique, Developed around him, that he was some kind of LSD-eyed old hermit, some freakish survivor of a government experiment, but that was more in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Now, as an old man, the myths have pretty much died out. Pynchon has participated in some of the coverage of his work, and there are several authors who mention that they routinely get lunch with Pynchon in Manhattan or they talk to him on the phone. The thing about Pynchon now is just that he doesn't like to be photographed, but there was one lone hawkish photographer who snatched a photo of Pynchon on the sidewalk in New York City in 1997. You can find it online, and even though the photo is very small and very blurry, the resemblance is definitely there. You look at this photo and there is no question about it, this is that dude from that high school photo in the 50s, except now he's got big curly hair and a mustache. CNN did an interesting profile of Pynchon about 25 years ago. You can find it on YouTube, and Pynchon himself participated. He just didn't allow himself to be photographed or for his voice to be recorded. But he answered questions, he played along, and at the end of the segment they did something cool. They had this montage of different sidewalks in Manhattan, different crowds of people bustling about, and then they closed the segment by saying, if you've ever wondered what Thomas Pynchon looks like today in 1997, well, you've just seen him walk by on your screen. So I guess he technically did allow himself to be photographed for the segment, he just didn't allow that photo to be labeled. But now, in 2020, we know exactly which person in that CNN footage is Thomas Pynchon. And that's because somebody from the National Enquirer a couple years ago caught and published the first clear photo of Thomas Pynchon in about 60 years. And how does he look? Well, he looks pretty old. My friends Bob and Linda came over to my apartment recently, and Bob is a big Pynchon fan as well. And out of nowhere, he opens his phone and he says, Hey, did you see that recent photo of Pynchon? And I thought he was referring to the 1997 street photo, the blurry one. But no, he pulls out his phone and he draws up the full page spread from National Enquirer, and there he is. Old, fragile, skinny white-haired Thomas Pynchon. Alongside of the photo, you'll find some self-congratulating text. In which the National Enquirer's editor is championing the fact that one of their reporters had stalked Pynchon's Manhattan apartment building for as long as necessary, until they could snag a couple shots of the mysterious, reclusive old man out on the town with his son. And I was so happy to see this fucking picture, to know, finally, the face of the man whose work I've read with so much delight and epiphany over the past few years. But at the same time, I felt like shit. Because Pynchon, of course, is not going to be thrilled that this photo is out there. I'm sure He's pissed that his privacy was violated, that he was stalked by a reporter, that at a time when he felt that he was enjoying his everyday, lifelong American right of anonymity, there was somebody stalking the campgrounds, waiting for him, watching, listening. And that dude's sneakiness, his duplicity, was not considered reprehensible to the world. It was celebrated. And so now Pynchon a guy who's enjoyed anonymity and and, and privacy his entire life, in his 80s has to go about thinking, fuck, now everyone's gonna be trying to get a photo of me. Imagine having that disruption of your lifelong privacy when you're fucking 83. But also, I'd be genuinely interested to know, how much would a major news outlet pay a freelance photographer who came to their editorial desk and said, Now look here, I've scored a photo of a very challenging post-war literary author who's 83 and hasn't been photographed in 60 years. I can't imagine that anyone would fork over top dollar for that. So what then is the incentive to pursue this photo and publish it? Maybe the photographer was a fan? Maybe the editor was a fan? In Jonathan Franzen's novel, Purity, he's got a character named Andreas Wolf, who's modeled after WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. And Andreas Wolf does the same thing that Assange does. He steals and publishes these massive troves of secret government documents. He collects them all, and then he just dumps them on the internet, free for anybody to look at. Now, similar to Assange, this character, Wolf, cannot personally read everything that he's dumping out on the internet. Because bear in mind, these data dumps comprise millions upon millions of pages of documents. In fact, part of the novel's argument is that this is why we need paid, professional, full-time journalists in America, and we can't just get our news from freelancers working the gig economy and the reason we need those reporters is because when somebody like Julian Assange dumps four million pages of secret government documents from the pentagon or wherever you need a couple of hundred reporters who are going to read those millions of pages over the course of two or three weeks and then make sense of them you need people who know government who, who have their thumb close on the pulse who are paid to have their thumb on the pulse to collect the data scattered among these documents and sort of pull it all together into a coherent narrative that we can understand The character Andreas Wolf's motivation is that he wants there to be no secrets in the world. His idea is that everyone should know everything about everybody in their life. It should all be on display. He's convinced that if nobody can hide who they are, the world will be a better place. Because we will all have a better idea of who we're working with. It'll throw a bit of context on the expectations that we carry around with us about ourselves and about others. Now, this character andreas wolf is a privacy invading radical of course and he takes this idea of abolishing privacy to an extreme but the idea isn't totally crazy the world of the internet really is making everybody's life a little more transparent for better or for worse the internet is full of videos where people make fools of themselves kids catch their parents being embarrassing and vice versa and suddenly there's this communal sense of humor and we see it through memes where everybody is commiserating about the ugly, awkward, silly domestic foibles to which we're all susceptible. Foibles that we can now see firsthand, footage from every household in America, showing that all of your neighbors across the street, behind you, side to side, they're just as inept as you. And it's comforting to look at those videos and think, I look that messy too when I wake up in the morning, or yes, I am just as clumsy, or yes, I'm just as terrible a singer or a dancer or a cook. And I think Pornhub is a particularly interesting agent toward this goal of transparency. And speaking of Julian Assange's info dumps, let's have a look at Pornhub's own info dump, their famous annual year in review, this one from 2019. In 2019, Pornhub.com saw 42 billion, with a B, website visits in total, amounting to roughly 115 million visits per day. 6.8 million videos were uploaded to Pornhub in 2019 alone accounting for 1.3 million hours of new pornographic content. Or, to give you a different perspective on what that means, 169 years of porn were uploaded to Pornhub.com in 2019. Almost two centuries of porn were uploaded in one year. If you were to travel back in time by way of watching all of Pornhub's 2019 uploads in reverse you would wake up in the year 1851. In other words, there's a lot of fucking porn. Here are the most searched porn terms from 2019 on Pornhub.com. Japanese. Hentai. Lesbian. Moms I'd like to fuck. Korean. Asian. Stepmom. Massage. Anal. Ebony. Big ass. Teen. Threesome. Anime. Anime. Public sex, cream pie, big tits, Chinese, gangbang, Latina, cartoon, Indian, big black cock, jerk off instructions, and finally, like my favorite Pokemon, squirt. The average American visitor spent 10 minutes and 36 seconds on Pornhub.com. The average French visitor lasted 13 seconds less. And if you're wondering which country lasted the longest with their visit to Pornhub, you guessed it, Thailand. (music) The most popular day and time for watching porn? Sundays at 11pm. The least popular time? Friday night. The average Pornhub visitor is 36 years old, and 76% of porn in 2019 was viewed on a cell phone. And in Franzen's novel Purity, that leaker that I was talking about, Andreas Wolf, he thinks that this is a universally good thing. Not porn itself, but just, but the sort of thing that we just explored. That kind of data, the kind of data that reveals that people are not really as decorous as they appear. What he wants is to show every person and institution what he or she or it really is. He doesn't differentiate between dumping millions of secret documents from Democrats or from Republicans, men or women, people of any race, color, creed. He just wants everything to be out in the open so that we can thereby achieve the titular idea of purity. He speaks constantly about the purifying light of exposure. Now, it's a complicated idea when you try to cast that over the entire world and every government and household in the world, That this idea that all their secrets should be exposed. I'm, I'm not really equipped to talk about that kind of thing, but I think it's an interesting idea to explore on the level of the individual, you yourself. I think about it all the time when I'm scripting a podcast in which I'm describing something intimate or drafting a blog post along the same lines. I wonder what is being gained by revealing these very personal things about myself, because I'm certainly closing a lot of professional doors by being so explicit. I cannot run for mayor because of this podcast. I probably cannot buy a gun. (laughs) But I also think that there is some good to it. Now, what does any of this have to do with Thomas Pynchon getting caught in a photo to which he would never have consented? Well, not a whole lot. I'm just kind of riffing here because I saw the photo, I had this cocktail of thoughts and feelings. And I like to collect those thoughts and feelings in my hand, like wet spaghetti, and throw them at you, listener, because you let them stick. I guess my final point here is just that there are good sides to privacy and good sides to exposure, which isn't revelatory, I know, right? I mean, a nine-year-old could figure that out, even if nobody told him.